Welcome to Mental Toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. Each week, Dr. Rob sits down with athletes, executives, and expert coaches to talk about mental toughness and their hinge moment. Here's your host, Dr. Rob. And a week goes by and I get a phone call from the assistant coach who had brought me in and he's just like real sarcastic talking to me. He's like, so, hey, um, we're just wondering why you couldn't call us. I'm like, wait, why my cousin called and I didn't? Well, yeah. Well, I didn't want to throw up while I was talking on the phone. Like, I, it was bad, man. Like, I was just constantly throwing up from whatever food poisoning I had gotten. Ah. <sighs> Okay. Well, I mean, we were really excited about you coming to our college. I'm like, well, so was I. I've told every other university that I'm going to Notre Dame. Well, we just didn't really think you wanted to come. Our head coach was going to be there. We just didn't really think. I said, I, are you serious? Well, we took your numbers to the admissions office and they said they weren't good enough. Folks, when I finished my 100 miler, I was happy to be done, but I wasn't finished. The reason why my legs weren't completely bonked from running was that I used PR lotion by Momentus. It simply eliminated any lactic acid buildup in my legs, and it's the best product I've ever used. Momentus is a leading nutrition and supplement company which works with over 150 professional and collegiate sports teams. No other company has the accolades of being awarded six innovation contracts from the Department of Defense for Human Performance. Since I started using PR Lotion, I now use their plant-based protein, collagen peptides, and recovery formula. Look, if performing is important to you, do yourself a favor. Go to livemomentous.com. And for listening today, you get the best part, a discount. Enter code DRB20 for 20% off your order. That's DRB and the number 20. LiveMomentous.com. Optimize, perform, and recover. LiveMomentous.com. So we have a baseball guest today on the Mental Toughness Podcast. So our other baseball episodes to check out. Episode 96, we had Ruben Amaro Jr. Episode 93, we had Coach Monty Lee. Episode 72, we had a Cy Young Award winner, Barry Zito. And episode 69 was Kansas City Royals announcer, Joel Goldberg. Our guest today, he pitched in the major leagues from 2008 to 2015. Pitched for three major league teams and made an all-star appearance in 2013. While with the Cleveland Indians, now known as the Guardians, he finished with over 1,000 Ks in his career. He once had an immaculate inning, which is striking out three consecutive batters on nine pitches. Pretty amazing. And he also struck out four hitters in one inning. And he's the only pitcher since 1912 to have four starts in a row in Fenway Park without a loss. Kind of amazing. Faith has been the focus um, of our guest's life, and I'm sure this will come out through this interview. He's married with three kids. Our guest today is Justin 
Masterson. Masty, Mr. Clean, how are you, buddy? <laughs> I'm doing great, Doc. I like the uh, the introduction there. A lot of uh, randomness. Just re- just a reminder that I wasn't great, but I was good enough to, to play I, the big leagues. <laughs> I, I, th- I think those stats are are pretty cool, man. And there's That's one more. Gonna, there's one more. Yeah, there's one more. I'm going to throw out in the interview when we get to it. But I, I okay. love stats like that. I think they're pretty amazing, man. No, it's it's cool stuff. It is, it is neat. I mean, I'm not as cool as all those other baseball people that you've already interviewed, but. Uh, at least I can be some, uh, you know, just little seconds for you compared to the main courses that you had earlier. <laughs> well, can you start with, uh, you were Jamaican born, but American made, man. Let's start with that. Let's start with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, just like you said, I was made in America, uh, but born in Jamaica. So my dad was teaching, working at Jamaican Theological Seminary. And he went over there, taught for two years. It's kind of the way that it went. Uh the program, he had gone to school at Jamaican Theological Seminary as a foreign exchange student, went back as this two-year program to teach, was kind of dean of students, some other things. And so the first two years of my life uh, were, were in Jamaica. And then we moved back to Indiana, Fort Wayne area, and then grew up most of my life in Beaver Creek, Ohio, just outside of Dayton. But it was just, in, in the end, it's just a cool story. I mean, Mike Lowell, who was my third baseman with the uh, Red Sox when I first came up into the big leagues after my first inning is my major league debut after the first inning I pitch uh, we're back in the dugout and he he's looking at me I was like you need something Mike he's like Masty were you born in Jamaica I'm like yes I was but this is kind of a weird time for you to be asking me about this well the third base coach out there said he was looking for a Jamaican so he thought there's gonna be some big old black guy out on the mound and here you are a bald <laughs> white guy and I'm like, yep, that's where I'm from. But it's, you know, it, again, it's just a cool story. It, uh, right. Of course, there's a Jamaica, Indiana, though, too, man. So there is. I, I didn't even know that in the yeah. scheme of it. But that, uh, yeah, no, I was actually, you know, over there. And yeah, it's, uh, there were four Jamaican born players who have played in the major leagues. I was the only pitcher who's come from it. But you got uh, Devon White, Chili Davis, and Rolando Rooms. Uh, I didn't know Chili Davis was uh, was Jamaican. That's awesome. Oh yeah. Now there is Mike Morse who also played in the big leagues, where he was not Jamaican born, uh, but I believe either his mom or dad are Jamaican, and so he is of Jamaican blood who played in the big leagues. Okay, nice man. Just you in know, case you wanted to know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great, great stats, man. But another good stat to add to the repertoire, man. That's that's perfect. So you know, during like your early school years, as the son of a preacher, man which I, I needed to put that in there. Of course. <laughs> but you spoke about, um, you know, accepting Christ early in your life, but you actually like welcomed making mistakes. Can you kind of talk about that and in, in, in that part of your life? Yeah. Well, it's the journey. Well, yeah. When I was a young kid, like six, seven years old, there was a little old lady who was just talking about how great Jesus was. Didn't even talk about how like he'll save you or he'll take away your sins or anything. It's like, this dude is really cool you probably want to try and get to know him. And I was like, all right, that sounds great. Let me try and get to know him. And really from that point on, it was how can I continue to get to know him better and better? And that's where it went each year and each year. And well, I made plenty of mistakes throughout the process of my life and I continue to make plenty of mistakes. Uh, But I know that that's the best way to grow. Like I have to 
you know, push myself to a point, not that I'm always trying to push boundaries or anything like that, but push myself to a point to understand and see, okay, what is it that I'm supposed to be doing? And then challenge myself if I can do it. And then if I can't, knowing that like, all right, there's my threshold or, okay, I did that. And I probably should never do that again. Uh, but on the other end, I watched a lot of people, uh, especially throughout my high school career of life, uh, make lots and lots of mistakes. And I was able to not make fun of them for them. I mean, make fun of them for them, but to see the mistakes that they made and go, ooh, I don't think I need to make that mistake too. I can take what they've done and learn from that, just like I was trying to learn. I think that's probably the better even perspective of it is making mistakes, not afraid of it, knowing that that is how we grow, uh, don't lose sleep over it. I mean, don't like it by any means in, in the moment, but uh, knowing that that's the, the best opportunity and best place to grow. And that's how I continue to, to gain experience and knowledge throughout the process of life, not even just you know throughout my sports career, uh, but just in life when things would come along and be able to say, hey, let me try and step into this. Nope, that one didn't work. Uh, I, you know, threw money away, unfortunately, thought I got a really good deal on something, ended up it wasn't the case and could hang my head in shame and go like, oh man, I'm, I'm a terrible person. I can't believe I did that. Or just go, huh, well, that wasn't good. We're not going to do that again. I'm going to be more careful about the things that I do, but I'm also not going to stop you know, trying to challenge myself in order to grow. Mm -hmm. So as a kid, you know, I mean, there would... <clears throat> You know, having Christ being being a part of the center, I mean, there's still a lot of times where outside would look at it as in, okay, well, Christians like to have it all together, not can make any mistakes. And it would even seem like from my standpoint, like the possibility of, you know, being the son of of a pastor, of a minister, that you would have even more kind of pressure on you. But but you use that as an example. And that's where I kind of look at, I mean, you as a kid, you had the maturity that seemed to uh, that you know your faith really was was to come out even through the the tough times. Oh, for sure, it, it definitely helped grow grow my maturity. But I was seeking after Jesus, man, trying to understand how he went about his business and the way that he handled the things that came his way. You know, as it talked about in the scriptures. And so when I saw that example, I'm like, well, let me see if I can do that. Where whereas I would go, and, and you're right, countless people who are pastors' kids. Like they, they, they rebel, they do different because it is, there's pressure that's put on you. I had a moment, I remember seventh grade basketball team. Uh, you know, I'm not one who usually, well, I, I don't ever curse just because that's never been a part of my lifestyle. But, you know, I think I said, you know, maybe crap or something, which is not even usually what was used when I was a kid. Uh, or I don't, you know, usually say it that often, but one of my teammates was just like, you can't say that. I was like, well, why can't I say that? Well, you're a pastor's kid. Like, and? And what? I, I What do you mean? It, I can say it if I want to. Like, it's okay. And and ultimately, as as you make it, you know, people be scared about failure. But I'm like, man, like if I, if I didn't have Jesus in my life, I don't even know what I'd do if failure came my way. Because I'd feel like I had lost everything. At least now I know, hey, whether I'm good, whether I'm bad, dude, God loves me no matter what. So I can continue to fight. I'll be honest, it allows me to pursue the things in my life at a greater rate than anyone else because I know that he's got my back and whatever it is. That doesn't mean I always have success, but I could fall 100 feet and he's still right there saying, hey, I got you, man. Don't worry. We'll mm -hmm. get through this together. 
And those are the things that that allowed my mentality to get to where it needed to be, to where I could, you know, bases loaded, two outs in the ninth inning that every kid dreams about. I could look in the stands and go, ha, this is why I play the game, baby. This is it. This is why I'm here. <laughs> Hey, good looking. If you like this podcast and are already a badass, but it's all way too complicated, then visit our website, drrobbell.com, and schedule a call with us to help capture your very own hinge moment. You know, in, in terms of that, like, so John Wooden had a moment where, you know, he's done playing at Purdue. He's going to take a coaching position. And I think he was like a, you know, a graduate assistant or something like that for a year. And he gets an offer from this college out West who he was going to decline. He was going to be the head coach of Minnesota. And, and I'm not sure if you know the story or not, but, you know, the, the time comes with Minnesota that he's going to get the call from Minnesota at five o'clock, accept the position. Six o'clock, he's going to decline from this offer out west, UCLA. Five o'clock comes, there's no call. Five thirty, five forty-five comes, there's no call. Six o'clock comes, it's UCLA. Hey, I mean, uh, six o'clock come, call it, it comes, and it's UCLA. Coach Wooden, we want you to be the head coach of UCLA. Figuring that Minnesota backed out, he says, "I accept the position." Minnesota calls at six fifteen. Coach Wooden, we are so sorry. There was a snowstorm up here, and our university official could not. The phones were down. We could not make the call at this time. We still want you to be the head coach of Minnesota. And being the man of integrity that he was, he said, I'm sorry, I already, already accepted that position. Now, the reason why I bring up that story, because I love that story about you know how God moments in this, but you had a D1 offer from Notre Dame. Right. And can you talk about the, that situation, even that that weekend when you were supposed to be up there, how that took place and how you didn't end up going there? Uh, yes, that was a very interesting experience to have as a senior in high school where I I was receiving offers from at least, you know, growing up, growing up in Ohio, I was in Ohio at the time, uh, at least every Ohio, Michigan Indiana, Illinois, Kentucky, like definitely right around uh, the states from every single school within those states. And I'm trying to sift through which one I want to do, you know, some good ones, some some interesting ones, small schools, big schools. Well, later in the deadline, Notre Dame comes along and they're calling and they say, hey, we're we're interested. Like, we want you to come to Notre Dame. And up by Notre Dame, where my my sister was going to a college called Bethel College at the time, now Bethel University. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. I could go up school to her. They had just finished at that time. That would have been 2003, the year before, just gone to the College World Series, uh, turned into a really good program. And I'm like, this is exciting. Like, this would be awesome. Not too far from home, but far enough where people could come. So they invite me up. They say, hey, this is great. You come on up. We'll sign your scholarship. You can meet the head coach and, you know, we'll get you in because they're, 
we're, you know, it's past the admissions deadline, but we'll get you in. Don't worry about it. So awesome. So I go up there and I stay with, uh, had some cousins uh, who were at Bethel College also, stay with them, hang out with them. It's a Christian college. Uh, so, you know, there's no, no alcohol, no crazy party and anything like that. People are just hanging out, talking to each other. Uh, I go to get food, go like Logan's Roadhouse or something. And I'm a big eater. So I eat a bunch of stuff, especially that time in, um, in my life. And, and so we go back and that night, next morning, I have uh, a meeting with them. And that night I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm just throwing up, like constantly throwing up. And it went on for hours. Like so much, I didn't get much sleep, wasn't sure. My hands around the toilet. I'm not sure. I had my cousin. I said, Hey, man, can you call them and just tell them I, I'm going to, I can't make it because I am just throwing up. I feel terrible. Like it's not good. So he calls them, lets them know. My mom says, Hey, just stay on up there, you know, meet with them the next day or the day after. And so I call them and leave a message and they don't call me back. So I go home and a week goes by. And I get a phone call from the assistant coach who had brought me in. And he's just like real sarcastic talking to me. He's like, so, hey, um, we're just wondering why you couldn't call us. I'm like, wait, why my cousin called and I didn't? Well, yeah. Well, I didn't want to throw up while I was talking on the phone. Like, I, it was bad, man. Like, I was just constantly throwing up from whatever food poisoning I had gotten. Ah, <sighs> okay. Well, I mean, we were really excited about you coming to our college. I'm like, well, so was I. I've told every other university that I'm going to Notre Dame. Well, we just didn't really think you wanted to come. Our head coach was going to be there. We just didn't really think. I said, I, are you serious? Well, we took your numbers to the admissions office and they said they weren't good enough. So, well, the only way I was getting into Notre Dame, because you came after the admissions deadline, was you helping me to get in. Well, we just weren't sure that you wanted to come. If you need anything in the future, you know, just let us know. And I said, if I need anything in the future, you're going to be the last person that I will ever talk to. And so then I decide because of that to go to Bethel College, which was across the way from Notre Dame. And, and a scout who went to a Notre Dame game and then he came over to one of our fall games. He's talking to me and says, Hey, I was just talking to Notre Dame coaches and they were just so sad that uh, you weren't able to go there. It's like, well, you should talk to them again because they're the reason that I didn't go there because I wanted to. And it turns out they thought that I was hungover and drunk and intoxicated. And, and in the end, they didn't know anything about me to, to understand the type of person I was. And so because of that, uh, I wasn't at Notre Dame and went to Bethel, Bethel College instead. And in the end, still got to go to the big leagues and, and have a good time with it and make some really cool relationships along the way. Yeah. See, the thing was, like, if, and I love that story, man. I appreciate you sharing because, I mean, that's a hinge moment. If, if John Wooden went to Minnesota, the story would have been different. If Masterson goes to Notre Dame, the story would have been totally different. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, so, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, things like that. I mean, it's just, you know, those God moments that happen, man, that those things happen. And uh, I'm just, I'm fascinated by those stories, man. <laughs> they, they are fascinating. They're not did you, the, the did most you get enjoyable the pitch against Notre Dame? No, they actually canceled on us. We were supposed to play against them uh, that year, and I was so pumped. And and as many D1 colleges do, Bethel's NAIA, a lot of D1 right. colleges will, when they're scared that they might lose, uh, they canceled. And that's a part of it. And the coaches who were there, uh, they actually left maybe a year or two after that. And the assistant coaches that I dealt with, 
ended up going somewhere else and ruining their program does not, he was not very high on people's list of things. So it's, it's highly unfortunate uh, for an individual like that to be doing the things that he's been doing. But Hey man, like you said, the hinge moment that came for me to, whether it was a little extra drive or it allows me to tell the cool story to people that you can still go to NIA if you care about making it to the big leagues and still, still get to where you need to be. Uh, you can still work hard and not get, you know, not lose sleep over the things that have taken place within your life. If you just continue to move and go and allow it to mold and shape you, you know, again, God's working, man. Like if for me, that's the center point of, of what keeps me right centered where I need to be. And so I don't go F baseball works. Cool. If it doesn't, all right, I'm going to do the next thing. If that doesn't work. All right. I'll do the next thing. It's, it's, it's very simple. It, uh, so did you use that as, as motivation, I mean, to, to push yourself even further, I mean, or, or how did you use that experience, you know, especially early on? I'd say subtly it, it, there wasn't this, well, I can't say that every time we like on the bus, when we were going to play somebody, we passed by Notre Dame, you know, I might say a few bad things about that college and Crap. most of the people, most of the people, yes, most of the people in the area, they were big fans of Notre Dame and they just like, well, it's just, just the baseball team, right? It was like, no, the whole university needs to go away, uh, which, you know, there's truth to it, but you know, the type of person I am, I can say things like that and yet still be in my right mind, you know, not overly angry, but I'd say it, it did add a little bit to it. And as I've grown from it, like seeing it, uh, there's also some pain and like, man, these are grown men who are just kind of toying with, with young men, you know, in, in the way that they go about some of the business that they do. And I didn't like that. But, but for me as a guy, I'm very much where I am is where I am, which is great for the, for the game of baseball. So when I went to Bethel, it was like, here we go. How, how can we go slice and dice? Like, yeah. not that I'm proving that uh, I should have been at Notre Dame. I'm just proving that, hey, you can still go to the big leagues and do what you need to do from this point. And, and it starts right here. Right. So you, you transfer to San Diego State um, under Tony Gwynn. Yes. Who's a pretty good hitter. You know, one of the things I was hoping you could elaborate on a little bit. So you spoke about, and we, we've spoken many times, you know, at practice, but you spoke about like even the hitters that were there, not quite giving him the due that, I mean, I would hold this guy in reverence, right? Like anything this guy would say, I mean, you've got a notebook and making sure you're taking every note that you can. But I mean, what was it about that time? I mean, just think like hitters just didn't really um, relate to his teachings and, and everything that he did. Cause I was always fascinated by examples like that. Yeah. After leaving San Diego state to get drafted and, yeah. and go to the minor leagues, like I, I understood Tony Gwynn's perspective, an amazing individual, like his, his wife is absolutely amazing lady, uh, which is probably why he is also uh, an amazing man, uh, not just hitter, but just person mm -hmm. to be around. Uh, his style was more of a pro style. If you want to get better, then come get better. If you want, like, I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to chase you, which is not always the best style uh, when it comes to, to college. But he was so simplistic about his philosophy. The hitting idea was as simple as get in position and then bottom hand to the ball. And there's the guy's... And it still happens today. People right. want something more complicated. Like it can't be that easy. Can't be C-ball, hit ball. 
No, no, they, they, they want something more, whether that's to confuse themselves, whether that's because they want to think about more stuff, you know, there's countless mentalities. You're smarter than I am about that stuff, doc, you know, that can lead to those type of philosophies, but, but he was so simple and I loved just going and talking to him about hitting. Now he'd always joke like, oh, Masti, I'd never be able to hit you. TG, you're, <laughs> you're the best hitter ever. Like, you're going to poke me everywhere. Like, there's no chance I'm getting you out. But I appreciate the confidence that you give me. Uh, but but it was just fun to talk about hitting. And he talked about the, the mentality and stuff of what would be going on. And I, and I just don't think people appreciated that as much when it came down to it. And he didn't force people to go take that. And, and I see that in my life and, and lots of things. But I, I loved it. And it surprised me. I'm like, who comes and doesn't listen to Tony Gwynn? Mm -hmm. I have no doubt he's going to make me a better hitter. But there's also the fact that if you don't see rewards in a quick amount of time, what do you do? Well, you revert back to your training, which is not always the best thing. And unfortunately, I think it probably in the end hurt a lot of guys from being able to because you'd see big leaguers. Ryan Howard is the one that I remember greatly, who's with the Phillies, just big old boy. He'd be in there every fall, almost every week, most days, you know, working with Tony Gwynn, you know, helping to mold and shape and who he was. And, and again, there is something in this world that if it's too simple, it doesn't seem like it's the thing that should be able to work. Like mm -hmm. we need to complicate it somehow, some way. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, and that's the, the oddity that came when I went out to San Diego State with Tony Gwynn. And though it was a, an incredible experience on, on many fronts, uh, for him in particular, you know, he, he also showed a professionalism unlike anybody else. The way he interacted with fans, people still wanted to autograph. He'd spend time doing that when the time was right. And those things that he showed me were, were just monumental. Mm -hmm. And it was. It was always weird to think about why. Why do you guys not listen to someone who understands it. And I know I'm beating a dead horse, but it was just the idea. I really believe it was too simple that guys couldn't rack their brains around it to sell out to that simple fact. Yeah. Well, I would say it, it takes a genius to keep it simple, man. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you were um, drafted in 2006, made your uh, first appearance in 2008. Talk to us about you know, even before you were, um, you know, opening day starter before, before those days, talk to us about the first couple of years of, of major league experience and what stands out to you. It was a, it was a journey. Um, uh, I'll give you, it starts a little bit in my brain to give you some of my, like a, the person that I am in mindset of what I was trying to do when I, when I got into professional baseball and it started with, when I got drafted, I had a couple of buddies at my house and we were, you know, trying to watch the draft is on the internet for the first time. And I get a phone call and it says, Hey, if we take you with our next pick, will you sign for X amount of dollars? I said, absolutely. Hang up. Look at my buddies. They're like, who called? Like, I don't know. What'd they ask if I'd sign, if they draft me with the next pick, but you don't know who it is. No, I don't have a clue who it is. I don't care. Hey, whoever wants to sign me, let's go. And so then they call again. It turns out it's the Boston Red Sox. 
and we say yes and I get drafted in the spot that I did and then my agent who was technically my advisor at the time but my agent I call him and say hey I'm signing with the Red Sox he's like wait what like I'm supposed to help you with that like I could have got you you know a little bit more money or something like that and I was like Randy I don't care about the money I want to get in the system start playing and get ready because once they see me in there that's how I'm going to get to the big leagues and you know sure enough we get in there and I just just start doing what it does. Work hard, uh, try and be the best teammate that I can be, encourage the guys around me, love on the people around me, which is different in that world. A lot of it's dog eat dog. And, and, and the people that I ended up being around brought a different perspective of I can encourage you, even though we're fighting for the same spot, there's 29 other teams. And if we're good enough, we can all make it. Like even though there's one starting spot in the Red Sox organization, there's other ones out there. And if we force somebody hands, we're going to be traded somewhere else where it's going to be beneficial for us. And that, that was hard for, for some people to truly understand. You know, they had to use other people's motivation. But, you know, worked hard, went out, had a coach, um, Bob Kipper. I was out in Lancaster, California. The, the organization had told me, you can't make it to the big leagues as a starter with two pitches. I was a sinking fastball slider guy. I said, you can't do it with two pitches. Like You need to get that change up, work on it. So the start of the season, I start working on that and was struggling. And Bob Kipper, a little fiery guy, pitched for the, uh, uh, I think, Pittsburgh Pirates for a little while. And he just gets me in there. And he's, he's skinny, but he's got this intensity to him. And he's like, what's your best pitch? I'm like, sinking fastball. He's like, well, I want you to throw that uh, – until the hitter tells you that you can't i'm like but they tell me that i need to i don't care what they say you throw that pitch until the hitter tells you you need to throw something different and i said yes sir and i get back out there and all of a sudden i just start pitching who i am and sure enough quickly after that sent up to double a next year starting double a in the big leagues within a month hold on one second masty so it's even and this is what I don't think people understand. It's even a situation like that where if you tried struggling and working on, you know, the circle change, you go down that route, you know, you struggle a little bit, you're trying to do it, you give up some dingers, you lose a little confidence and you kind of just lose your way a little bit. It's even in situations like that, the importance of having that coach to say, no, man, you got to stick to your strengths. I, I would hate to wonder if Bob Kipper wasn't as strong, I have to think that he had the same scenario or situation or something within his life that allowed someone to speak into him and say, hey, man, not that you shouldn't ever work on those other things, but you stick to your strengths. And that is why they drafted you. And that is what's going to get you to the big leagues. And at some point in time, if at the end it doesn't work, then you can start adjusting your ways. But this is what makes you you go do you. You know, in, in other worlds, we talk about if you know one thing, teach one thing. Everyone's like, well, I don't know enough about this. Like, no, no one thing, teach one thing. You go do what makes you you until someone says that it doesn't work. And not by just their words, but in actuality. Mm -hmm. and, and it proved that when I went out and utilized, it wasn't always perfect, but I had success. And that's why I, I give a lot. I mean, there was countless guys within my life who have been beneficial. But Bob Kipper, in that moment... And I'm thankful that I gave him authority in my life to be able to, to listen to what he had to say 
and not be like, well, I hear you, but you're not the farm director or the GM and they're the ones who told me this. So I'm going to listen right. to them better than I'm going to listen to you. And Bob, who it was pretty much, I don't even care about like, probably doesn't care about his career. He's like, for the sake of you, Masty, go do this. Yeah. And I'm, I'm forever grateful uh, for that because it allowed me to be where I am. I mean, another example of just, just keep it simple. Yes. That's it. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And the reason why I bring that up, because I mean, I see it a lot of times, it's just, I think more careers kind of get ruined by searching rather than just practicing and reinforcing. And because ultimately, right, it's, there is not going to be schemes. It's just going to be the competition piece and making sure you know what your strengths are. Well, I, I look at it countless times. I've seen it, uh, whether it's in life, whether it's in sports, we constantly work on our weaknesses, which is great. But many times we forget to work on our strengths. Like I would say you need to work on your strength more than your weakness, Absolutely. but you need to work on that weakness too. And, and, and more often than not, and the way it's been stressed and I've heard it and seen it and been a part of it where they flip flop that and are just like, no, weakness, 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 weakness. And what happens without fail, I feel like I've seen this almost every time is the strength goes away. Mm. So now the thing that brought you to the table no longer actually works. And now your strength is, your weakness is better, but it's still nowhere near what your strength was. And now your strength has gone away. And now you are what? Just another commodity who's probably going to be kicked to the curb uh, in no time. And I think that's in all walks of life. That's not mm -hmm. just in sports, but I have personally seen it countless times within the sports world. I kind of equate it to, you know, um, <clears throat> our kids bring home a report card. I mean, you got some A's in there, you got some B's in there. And then what do we do, right? What, what, what is this D in, in, <laughs> right. in math? <laughs> you know, you got to work on this D. You got to bring this D up. So we grind that out. And at the end of the day or end of the year or end of a couple of years, the result is, okay, they're no longer crappy at math. They just suck less at it, but they're really not that good at it and they don't like it. Right. What happened? Well, what happened in the meantime? Well, we sacrificed that English and we sacrificed them writing, which they're really good at and they're passionate about. And, and, and then, you know, they just lose their way from it, man. So that's, that's righteous statement that you make. I totally agree. Yeah. And it's, and it's sad because I've seen it shoot. You know, as you talk about, you know, faith is big on I me. Mean, I see it in, in the Christian life where people struggle with something and we're so, we're so concerned about working on that struggle that you know the other things kind of go and it's like oh yeah we become very even within it but that's not necessarily the goal yeah. you know balance does not mean we're even in all types of things and so i i want to continue to go like yeah i struggle with that and i'm going to try and make new habits that will balance that but this is what i do best mm -hmm. but often people don't understand the value of what they do best like if you're really good at this you need to understand you're really good at this so keep being good at that and see how you can continue to develop. Because if you're good at it, that means it's life-giving to you. Yeah. And you want to be there. You sit in that well. And these other things, not as life-giving. Yep. So you're going to, you can't sit in them as long. So you have to take moments in them and then get back moments and keep going back to where you need to be. So you were twice an opening day starter. And, and one of the, no, three times. I don't know. Three you, you tell me, probably. <laughs> I hope I, I hope I didn't mess up my notes, man. The research, but um, don't ask me. I, th I, I, don't I know thought you would have say that off because my next question is going to be: 
<laughs> what was that like being an opening day starter? I think a lot of times like the, the fantasy is, you know, pitching the world series, but an opening day starter. It is, it is incredible. It's really cool. And I know, and on the one hand, it's just the, it's just one game. It's the start of the year, but it is the, the tone setter. Every single team, no matter how good or bad people have said they think they will be, is 0-0 and have a chance of greatness on that first day. And so to have the opportunity to go out there and set that tone is, is pretty special. You know, I, I probably try to downplay it more when I was actually doing it, but, but now being able to, to look back and reflect is just like, wow, that, that, was, that was a really neat experience. And typically the opening day starts went really good for me too. So, so that, yeah. that was also enjoyable, but I like, I've, I'll say this. I like big moments. I've learned to grow in those big moments. Cause I know there's one of two things you either do great or you don't. And if you don't, you just have to deal with it. And I've learned to deal with the fact of being disappointing, you know, disappointing teammates and fans and hearing all the opinions of how bad you are. And then also in greatness to be able to go like, I can also understand, appreciate this is just a game. You know, mm -hmm. it's one game, one time, and, and not to still appreciate and enjoy the moment, but to not let any moment get too big or, or, or too vast for right. what we're trying to do. And so I said there was another stat that was in there that you held. And one of them being, I think one of only like four pitchers who have beaten the previous Cy Young Award winners back to back times, which is which is what you did with R.A. Dickey and then David Price. Well, because usually they're in opposite leagues. Yeah. Somehow they were traded to be in the American League that year. And I did, yeah, put it to both of them back to back games. That was fun. I mean, look at these stats we're throwing out there, man. I mean, it's just, you know, it's awesome stuff. I mean, great, great oh. records. So the other thing is this is let me let me get into this because one of the things uh, that I've learned so much from you is how to handle loss, how to handle defeat. And then even kind of talking with you know the team that we both help out with, it was who who in this locker room has lost the most? And you know, they point to the old guy and said, No, no, no. So, buddy, Masty lost more than he won. So if you want to know how to, because I, I I still hate losing, mm -hmm. but it's like, you know, when you go through that experience, you I think even in life, right, we're going to have more losses than we are wins. We're going to have more setbacks than we are wins, even though it's not about the setback, it's about the comeback. But mm -hmm. if we're trying to set a new bench press record or or whatever, we're going to try to improve our bench press, we're going to have so many times where you don't get that lift and then we finally get it. And then what we do in our mind, we set that, uh, you know, invisible field goal a little bit further. Like we push the field goal post back. But how did you learn throughout your career to handle, you know, defeat and loss? One of the hard things about defeat and loss is, is typically we're, it's either by default or taught that we just dwell on loss so much more. And actually, I, I know that it is. There was, there was a study done at one point in time where it talked about uh, if you had a bad experience at a restaurant uh, or a good experience, I should say, you're going to tell like six or seven people. If you had a bad experience, you're probably going to tell 15 to 20 people. And so whenever you know, loss comes, we just dwell on that undeniably and uncontrollably. 
And so you have to change your mind. Like that, that's honestly what I did was, was changing the mind of what, what loss and failure does. And to what we, you know, had talked about earlier, this idea of a failure that came is not the end all be all. Like if I see it as a way that I'm growing and how, how can I learn from this? How can I get better from this? Well, then loss comes where it hurts. Well, and that's okay. Just like anything, you validate it. Yes, this hurts. Okay, now let's change my perspective of where it is and then let's go repattern and do something different, you know? So that, you know, that's, those are the ideas of what has have taken place within my own life. Cause, cause again, I, I think it's been the thread of what we've been talking about. I'm not going to let two moment get too big and too vast. Why would I let a loss get too big or too vast? And it, and, and there was a moment in 2013 and, and, I, and this story will, will tell you we're not always perfect at it, but another guy who understood it, we're playing the New York Yankees and 2013 is my all-star year. So overall, I'm having a good season. It's the seventh inning, I think. And, um, oh, the left fielder, the little left fielder who hits the ball. I can't think of what his name is, but he's Paul O'Neill. Uh, no, no, his little past him, uh, past Paul O'Neill's time. Um, but whatever his name was, quick little outfielder that was there for a long time, uh, lefty. He was up to bat, two outs, man on first and second. All I have to do, I'm getting a little tired. We're in the seventh. So it's probably six, you know, six and two thirds innings. All I have to do is not hang a slider. And if we talk anything about mentality, as you well, and anyone who's yeah, listening has probably heard it. Not, yeah. If you say that, of course, what did I do? Hung it. Hung it. What does he do? Just a soft little poke up the middle. And what am I? I'm feeling sorry for myself. I'm like, how could I do that? I know better than that. I said it. I did it. And now bases are going. These guys are running. So I stay out of position. Game's on ESPN. Uh, ESPN, I think it was like a Monday night game or Sunday night, whatever it was. And the pitcher, if there's a ball to the outfield, guy on second, should go run behind home plate to back up the catcher for whatever throw goes. Well, because I'm feeling sorry for myself, I'm standing in front of home plate. Outfielder throws the ball in. I cut it off. I see every single one of my fielder's heads go down. I look behind me. Look at my catcher. I said, we had him, didn't he? I cut off the ball, and the guy running was still halfway to home. And because I felt so sorry for myself, we would have got him out. And instead, two-run score, which I think it was like one nothing at the time. Now it's 2-1, to one and we're losing. Pitch, get the next guy out, go in the dugout. I chuck my glove. My mom calls me later and is like, hey – I saw you throw your glove. Are you okay? I'm like, well, you didn't see the other things I threw. I go down, I throw this and that, and it's not usually my style, but I am a fan of like exaggerating some of the things you're feeling, not hurting yourself, but an exaggeration to just kind of get it out. And uh, in the midst of this kind of emotional outburst, um, Jason Giambi, who gone through a lot (laughs) in the game of baseball, he comes up, he brings me a towel and he puts it on my right hand. And he's like, hey, man, I understand what's happening, but we can't lose you for the next game. And so you do what you need to do, but I don't want these guys thinking that they've lost you. And that was just a moment that I already knew that statement, but it was such a reminder of, "Ah, you're right. Like, though I lost here, if I dwell on this loss, well, then that's going to trickle down to the next and the next and the next. And one of the philosophies that I push a ton is our ability to make adjustments. 
And I can't, I think that's kind of the reverse of it. Like when we're first doing it, yeah, the loss might last for too long. Like when my adjustments, it might be from game to game. After that, it turns into batter to batter because I'm growing and understanding this. And, and then what does it do? It turns into pitch to pitch. Mm-hmm. So each pitch, I'm able to make that adjustment. So each loss, yes, it hurts in the moment, but now I can take it as a moment of learning, but not losing myself in that process. And, and that's probably ultimately what, what led to, to where I am at this point and what I try and push the people around me. I think it's fantastic, man. I, I love that. And I appreciate you sharing that story, man. It's, it's perfect. Um, with, with that said, I mean, 2013, 2014 comes, right? Off season. How did, you know, there were contract issues that happened that year. How did that affect, um, you know, or, or did it even like your mentality and inability to go out there and play and perform? <laughs> the contract stuff didn't really affect me much. It was the fact that I tore my oblique at the end of 2013. I came back to pitch, which I felt okay but I didn't rehab the injury well enough. Uh, I think it's not that I'm a tough guy type mentality, but I, 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 I'm not afraid of suffering, physical, mental, whatever. Uh, if someone has to suffer, might as well be me. And, and within that, I, I try and do things right. But hey, they told me it would be four to six week injury. I was back three weeks to the day that I got hurt and was able to help us, you know, pitch in, in five games leading to, we won 10 games in a row to end the season to make the, the wild card game, you know, that year, which is a really cool thing as a team. Uh, and I think we all thought I was healthier than I was, and I didn't put the work in to rehab my body. And so when I came into spring training, there was weakness. Uh, there was still some pain that was there, and that was more on my mind. Because there was a contract that was given out, and my wife still makes gives me a hard time for the fact that I didn't sign it. And and honestly, in the end game of things, it would have kept me with the Indians, which I, I enjoyed being with them. Uh, it was a fun organization to be with, uh, and a good group of guys. But honestly, in my mind, you know, my agent was working the angle of we wanted a few more dollars than this, and there was a part of me where I don't know if I want to sign a, a, a long term deal. Because I don't know if I want to deal with the fact that I might have to get a surgery or might have to be hurt or go on the DL and recover from something one or two years into this deal. And that's not necessarily the right way to, you know, I'm, I'm not wrong at the guy who goes the opposite way of it because, you know, you're paid off of what you did, not what you're going to do. I know it's weird, but that's just the way, you know, kind of baseball has worked uh, for the entirety of the system. And and there was just a part of me, and I don't know why, but it's like I don't, I don't want to be that guy who goes and then is sitting on the DL. Uh, if God wants to give me money, I'll take the money from somewhere else. You know, He'll provide in some other way. And and honestly, that that was that was where it went. I don't know what it means, what it comes out, but and speaking out loud about it, that was the process that took place. And so the 2014 season was just me not at full strength and trying to will it. I had all my starting pitchers after every start that wasn't as good. They're just going, Massey, we're looking like we're just, they're scouring my video, even while I'm pitching, trying to figure out what that difference was. That's, I mean, a testament to the incredibleness of those guys. You know, 
I, I you know, can't say well, but like, you know, Corey Kluber, or Josh Tomlin, um, you know, were, were two of the bigger ones who were, who were doing that. And unfortunately what it was, was it was weakness. Like the fact that I couldn't get to where I needed to be. And I didn't have enough time to be able to recover from that. And, and it was really disappointing, but that was again, a part of the process of <laughs> learning that baseball can't be the one thing that identifies who I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, if people think I'm a lesser person because I'm not having as much success, um, that's a part of the process. You find out who your people are and who's around you. You find out who you are. It's not the times, not the times when things are growing great. You tell me, you tell me someone who suffered through some stuff and that's telling me someone I want to be around. Right. You tell someone who hasn't been through some suffering yet in any way, shape or form in their life. And I'll be like, okay, we'll talk sometime soon. It's going to come. Mm-hmm. And when it comes, we'll see how they handle it and deal with it. And then we'll be able to have some conversations. One of the pieces that, or one of the quotes that you, that you talked about was keep your relationships bigger than the problem. And I want you to talk about that. But the part that was fascinating to me was when you were traded, you knew you were a high socks guy. Mm-hmm. And when you were traded, your team donned the high socks. I mean, that's, that's, that's quite the testament, man, in terms of accolades you know, to have your peers that are going to don the high socks. Can you, can you just tie that all together for us? It was, uh, you know, I don't do a great job of uh, always connecting with people and staying in touch when, when I'm away. As I said earlier, I'm, I'm really good in person and with people. Uh, but where, where I'm, I've tried to grow a lot is, is reaching out and, and connecting. Um, but I, it, it brought tears to my eyes, man. When, uh, when you walk away from something and, and a, you know, whether they all did it because it was a testament to, to me and, and no longer being a part of that team or, or just the thing to do. But, uh, I don't, know, I don't even know words to it. it. It was just a really neat experience. And whether I, you know, hang out with those guys ever again, just the, the battles that we went through together, um, the things that we taught each other in those moments that were difficult and in the moments that were great, you know, those are the type of things that were happening. And, and if we, if we take that to the fact of, you know, the, the quote that you kind of said, one of the biggest things that we try and do when we're trying to handle these big emotions that come our way is to act like ourselves. And, and if we can remain relational, we can disagree on some things, we can, uh, we can have struggles and, and yet still come to the park every day. And so act like ourselves and remain relational, then we're doing a really good job of keeping all these relationships bigger than whatever problems are in our life. And that is a very difficult thing to do. And just like anything else, you have to train yourself to be able to do that. And through lots of training and working hard and at times still struggling with it to be able to keep those relationships bigger, that's what you get. You get those moments where, yeah, we may not talk again until the Lord takes us home. Uh, but we had our moments together and they were incredible and we'll never forget them. Is, um, 
Is there anything else you can add about keeping relationships bigger than the problem? I mean, I love it. You, you synthesize. It was great. But I mean, what else about it? Uh, <laughs> I mean, ultimately, in the thing, it's, it is, it's a simple concept there, Doc. Right. Uh, when, it, when it goes down to it, it, it because simp- simply put, if we're trying to remain relational, these, these big upsetting emotions are going to come and get us. Whether it's anger, disgust, um, anxiety, uh, all different types of things like that. And so when, when they come at us, it does a great job of look at any of the commercials for Snickers that came our way. You, you're not yourself when you're hungry. We get the idea of hangry and all those different things that come our way. And, and so for them, it's like the idea of, well, eat something and then you can get back to being yourself. And so my thought process, and I didn't come up with this stuff, but, you know, uh, as other people have put it so in better words, how do we keep ourselves from getting hangry, from getting to that moments where people are looking at us like, oh, you're not acting like yourself here. Here's a Snickers. It's like, no, from the get go. And now if you take the food away and you have a relationship and all of a sudden somebody does something to you that you take offense to. And now you're going to treat them differently because of what they did, whether they did it on purpose or not. And now you're going to act some type of way, which is out of your typical character of who you are in a normal situation. And then people are going to look and be like, what's wrong with them? Well, so-and-so did this. And now other people are going to start walking on eggshells around you. The narcissist within you is coming out because it's your world and they've wrecked your world or they've done something to you. How dare they? Step into your kingdom and do that. And yet from the beginning, I'm going to say, well, if we can work on that from the get-go and somebody says something, and if I keep that relationship bigger than what the problem is, then I can have a reasonable conversation with them and maybe find out that they didn't purposely did that, do what they were doing or realize that they were purposely intending to hurt me. And yet I didn't allow it to go the way they wanted And so now things are different because they didn't get the response that they were maybe trying to get out of me. And now we're having a reasonable conversation. They're sitting there going like, what don't, aren't you upset? I'm like, why, why should I be upset about this? Like when I was in college, my freshman year and my cousin, who is a uh, fifth year senior, we're rooming together and brand new computer I got. He needed to borrow it. I said, sure, just be careful with it. Within minutes of him having it, drops it off the couch, on the plug, breaks it. He was so scared to tell me. And he comes up and he's like, Justin, I uh, I broke your computer. It's like, my, my brand new computer, Dad? I did. Well, okay. Wait, what do you mean? Well, okay. What do you mean, okay? Well, what can we do about it now? You broke my computer. Let's figure out how we're going to do it. No, no, no. Like, you're supposed to yell at me or hit me or do something to me. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that, Dan. We're going to figure out how to make that work in some way, shape, or form. And he was just befuddled by that encounter. And he would tell that story countless times and countless times and over the years he's he's brought it up many times and i 
And again, not that I'm so great and awesome in all different ways, shapes, and forms, but it's those moments that you just see. And in your lingo, you know, just one of those simple hinge moments where you just like are able to see like, wow, I reacted that way. And it changed the way that the whole situation went, not just for them, but for me also. And maybe there's something to this. And, and that's been the cool thing about it. See, I know it's a simple concept. If I didn't elaborate on that, I wouldn't have known that story. About keeping relationships <laughs> bigger than bigger than the problem. <laughs> you had a thousand and four strikeouts in your career. Do you remember your thousandth uh, strikeout? Uh, no, I don't. Was it Ricky Henderson? Definitely not. I can tell you though, not a thousand, but I was able to strike out Ken Griffey Jr., who was uh, uh, one of my heroes growing yeah. up, and you. Kind of see it, not really on my wall in the back there. But uh, then there's Frank Thomas, who was my favorite player growing up. Big Hurt was, and, huh? Oh, the nice. Big Hurt man. Big fan. Got to meet him too later on, get a picture with him. And he's huge. Like After you, after you K'd him? Well, it was his final year, and he's with the Toronto Blue Jays. Oh, yeah. Uh, two outs. He was on deck. And honestly, I walked the guy who was up the bat because I didn't know how long you know Frank would be playing so that I could – face frank thomas Love and it. i didn't strike him out uh i was hoping to strike him out i didn't strike him out first pitch fastball tried to sneak a slider in he popped it up foul territory to the first baseman and we got him out but i was hoping to strike him out that was the uh only opportunity i got to face him but uh yeah i can't remember all those but i i don't know it's just part of the game i wasn't looking to punch tickets as i call it yeah. Uh, were there any were there any of the strikeouts that uh were memorable to you? Split oh, out? there's yes. There there are a couple. Uh share, share one of them. Yeah. Well, one of them was oh man, uh Eric Ibar. I almost forgot his name. Eric Ibar, who's switch hitter for uh Los Angeles, Anaheim Angels, whichever year you're talking about, whatever they want to be. Uh good hitter, good player. You love to have them. But I got a like one two count on them. I throw this nasty slider. He swings through it and it just hits him in the back leg, like in the thigh, like just crushed him. And I always wanted to hit people and have them swing. And so it's yeah. strike three. It swung and it hit him. So it was, it was injury to insult, you know, in the purest form. And I always wanted to do that to a right-handed hitter, but being a right-handed thrower is a little bit more difficult. But I'm pretty confident I'm not making it up. I, I, I'd have to go. I have to look. But we were playing Minnesota, and I don't remember exactly which guy it was, but we're facing the Twins, and I had you know, a lot of movement on my fastball. And threw a pitch inside. Guy turns on it, hits it like a mile foul. And so Just a you'll long sl- strike. That's it, a long strike. Throw a slider away, and we'll get two strikes. So I come in again with the sinker and this one had some nasty sink and he swung and it didn't like crush him as hard as it hit uh, Eric Ibar on the opposite side, but it went off of his back leg and it was just like, I threw my hands up and it's like, I did it. I finally did it. Hit a guy and he struck out. And the only other one, there's, there's a third one that sticks out the most. And that was when I was facing uh, Jason Wirth. And he was with the Nationals at the time. And it just sticks out. Uh, I don't know the guy you know, really that well, but just what took place during it. So I struck him out twice. Mm-hmm. And after the first one, 
you know, sinkers on his bat. He's swinging and missing, swinging and missing. He strikes out and he is just yelling at his dugout. I don't know why, but he's screaming at his dugout, just going, what? You told me what they must have given him the wrong scouting report or something. And so I punch his ticket and I love it that he's just so upset yelling. Comes in the next day, B, get him again and just make him look ugly, you know, on a slider out and away. And again, he is just screaming at his dugout. And I just really enjoyed when people got really fired up and the fact that mm-hmm. they just struck out. You know, the next guest on the podcast is actually Jason Worth. Perfect. Yeah, I can bring that up. <laughs> you, you should. He probably won't remember or maybe have some better insight to it. Oh, he'll remember. <laughs> he'll remember. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Hey, um, Masty, one last question. Like, what question should I be asking that uh, that I haven't asked? Want to listen to your favorite music, but you're sick of all the commercial interruptions and negative news today? Tune in to KukoRadio.com. Music for your mindset. We're a commercial-free online radio station. Play nothing but hits. Our free iOS and Android apps are available for download at KukoRadio.com. I'll tell you this. I, I don't know because... In my life, the way it just happens and goes, uh, when I started hanging out with high schoolers, uh, working with some high school teams, you get a few guys like, hey, tell me a story. And I'm like, what do I look like, a storyteller? I'm like, well, you know, we had you know an old timer who played big leagues or whatever, and he'd just tell us all types of stories. I'm like, well, when the situation is right, a story will rise. And I say, I'll be honest, I can't always remember all the stories. But when the conversation moves and grooves in the way that it does, stories will come out. So what's the right questions? I don't know, because when they come along, those are things that come out. But in the end, it's just the fact that uh, I guess the reason that I quit the game and I say I quit the game of baseball was was not I didn't retire. I quit 2017. I was finally healthy, but I had shoulder surgery. Saw my family five weeks out of nine months. And, and I said, what does it gain me to prove that I can pitch in the major leagues again and yet lose my family? Nothing. And so I quit the game. And countless people told me, like, oh, don't do it for your family. You know, it's not worth it. You'll, you'll come to a point in time where you say, well, don't you know what I did for you? And, and I say, well, you don't know me well enough. When I make a decision, I make that decision. I stick to it and I own up to it. So when I do it is because of me, not because of them. And, you know, making that decision, uh, there's moments where it's like, oh, it'd be fun to be out there, but I don't regret it one bit. The amount of time I get with my family and to do the different things, though baseball was great and fun, it was just a part of my life, which is the way things have always been, just a part. You know, God has been faithful to me as I try and continue to grow in my relationship and just understand him more and more and being able to do that with my family, there's nothing greater. Yeah, that's a mic drop there, Massey. <laughs> but thanks so much for the time, man. And uh, I really appreciate you uh, sharing. Of course, man. Thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to Mental Toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. 
To find out more about Dr. Rob, visit his website at drrobbell.com or follow him on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell. And subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform to get the next episode of Mental Toughness as soon as it's available. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.